This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and I've got Jonathan Kronstadt in the building with me, better known as Jay Kron. And if you are ready for a serious conversation, I think you're going to be very pleased with what you hear on the other end of this episode. Jay Kron, how are things out west? Where are you in, like San Diego? Everything's wonderful, Jerome. Now here in Southern California, the sun is almost always shining and it's definitely shining today. So no complaints. Great to be here with you. Thanks for jumping on with me, man. So I saw you in the front of a room and you were giving the story. I think you called it a double unicorn. Was it your seven step process for a double unicorn exit? (laughs) Was that the name of the talk? Yeah, correct. So uh, for those of you listening, uh, Coach Jerome and I met at Roland Frazier's Consulting for Equity event in San Diego. And Roland and I have been friends for about a decade, almost decade and a half. And so what Roland asked me to do is he's really been pushing me to codify my framework and views on business for a very long time. And one of the jokes that always came out of me speaking at any event post my exiting operations at Kajabi is everybody always would joke about, you know, well, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? How'd you do it? And my joke was always, well, I don't really have my, you know, seven point never fail double unicorn checklist with me. And so the joke really kind of carried on until I actually started sitting down writing a book and kind of putting these frameworks into practice. And I asked Roland, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I've got the name and the name is going to be Billion Dollar Bulldog for the book, but I don't know that I'm crystal clear on the subhead or kind of how I want to present this. And Roland's like, oh, that's easy. You know, it's your seven point almost never fail double unicorn checklist. And I was like, okay, we'll make it that. So that became the uh, keynote presentation that you saw, which is basically a, an overview of what the book will be. And that's how we got to that. It, just like all great stories, it was a, a complete joke that then took on a life of its own. So I was listening to one of the interviews that you've done and you don't do many. So really grateful for the opportunity to sit with you today. And you, the guy was asking you, like, how did you put the plan together to go from like Joe Polish's thing to digital marker to Kajabi? And you basically told him that you didn't have a plan. It just kind of worked out that way. And so I want to go there. Yeah, my my joke is always that God watches out for fools and little children, and I'm half of each. So that's pretty much how most of my career stacks up. I'd say that if you mine it for threads, the common threads are going to be relationships, delivering value. And those are really the two frameworks that I approach everything from is namely, how can I make this relationship something that becomes an opportunity to really get to know somebody over the long term and have them become somebody that is in my life for an extended period of time. That's definitely foundation number one. And foundation number two is delivering value. You don't have long-term relationships unless you're delivering value first. 
So those would be the two foundational elements that you would see probably tie those relationships all together. But as far as a strategic plan of how I got from Joe Polish to where I am today, there's a whole lot of serendipity layered on top of those fundamental values. Yeah. So basically you had guiding principles and you use those guiding principles to put you in a great place. And that is magical because I think some people are looking for the road signs and they want to follow GPS, but that's not really the answer. It's I'm going in this direction and I have these morals, principles and values, and those things will help deliver the outcome that I desire most. When we started the episode, I, I tend to dive straight in. And so most people might not know what a double unicorn is. You talked about billion dollar bullseye. And so they might have started connecting the dots, but you went to Kajabi and I think they were at like $6 million in revenue. And you came in as CEO or chief operating officer, some high level C-suite role. And then you guys grew it to a hundred million there. Sorry, looks like I unmuted for a moment there. So if we talk through this story from the beginning, for those of you that are unfamiliar with the term unicorn, it's kind of shorthand in the software as a service world for a company that achieves a billion dollar valuation. So that's where unicorn comes in. And Kajabi, when Kenny and I stepped out of our operating roles in July of 21, we had achieved a $2 billion valuation, giving it the double unicorn. So if you look at my journey at Kajabi, I was with Kajabi for approximately six years. When I started with Kajabi, the company was doing about $6 million in ARR with approximately 25 or so team members. And when we stepped out of our operating roles in July of 21, we were over 400 team members. We had crossed over nine figures in revenue and continuing to grow past $100 million and beyond and a $2 billion valuation led by Tiger Global with TPG, Tidemark, Owl Rock, and Meritech. If you're familiar with the private equity group world. So that's kind of the way the journey went. And that's where the term unicorn comes from. And so was there like a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? Because I mean, if we talk about unicorns, we got to talk about rainbows, right? And so what'd you find when you got to the pot of the gold if, if there was one there? Yeah, I'd actually have to quote my friend Jermaine Griggs, who we were talking about life and pursuit of goals. And he basically said, you know, did you play Nintendo as a kid? I'm like, yeah, of course I did. I grew up in the Midwest. I was a Nintendo addict. And he said, well, with every level, there's a new devil. And I was like, that is exactly the way that my life has certainly been experienced, that with each level of challenge, there comes a new hurdle that you've got to overcome, wall that you've got to get through or get over, get beyond there's always going to be another challenge at each level. And so I think that I've now experienced enough seasons in my life where I've been subject to my, I'll be happy when, and you can insert anything after when it's, you know, when I get a house, when I get a better house, when I get a car, when I get a better car, when I get a shinier thing here or the right relationship there. And I've now been fortunate enough to experience that even when you fill that in, the feelings that you had beforehand are the same feelings you have afterwards. Then I always remember Jim Carrey's quote of, I wish everyone could get rich and famous so that you find out it won't solve any of the problems. And that's partially true, but also partially not true because it does solve some of the problems, but the problems that you solve are very quickly replaced by other problems. So I would say that for me, my experience has been the joy in my life has come from the pursuit. It's come from the overcoming challenges. It's come from being on the field and playing the game. And that's something that I think I didn't realize until I took a step out of the game and realized how much I missed being on the field. I was just at a buddy's place yesterday. We were reviewing a pitch deck. He's about to go out and do a debt raise for his company because he's scaling pretty aggressively. 
And I left that meeting thinking to myself, wow, you know, I miss that feeling. I miss that feeling of I'm going after this. But in the very same moment, as I'm leaving his office and it's four o'clock on a Sunday, I'm heading home with nothing to do for the remainder of the evening other than have dinner and hang out with my wife and daughter. And he's in the office working on his pitch deck on a Sunday evening. So it almost creates a little bit of this schizophrenic feeling of like, oh my gosh, I missed that. I want to go back at that with a very equal balance of, but boy, am I glad I'm, I'm not doing that right now. And, and no, I have to go do that. So it's a pretty odd journey, you know, to see. Okay. So the journey, if I get this right, you're saying that the reward was in the journey, not so much in the destination. I'm going to say it's both. I think that it's very disingenuous for people to say, oh, I achieved the goals that I set out to and there was no happiness. Completely not true. There were a ton of moments of unbridled joy, being able to experience things I've always wanted to experience, being able to have my family and my friends experience things I've always wanted them to experience. All of that stuff was super cool, totally awesome. And the joke that I make with everybody is like, my friend Ryan Moran, I'll give him credit for giving you know this statement kind of light, but I, I think it's something I plan on stealing completely for my book, The Billion Dollar Bullseye. Really, this type of a framework will make you successful enough that you'll have your own existential crisis. And even though I tell you that that existential crisis is coming, you're going to want to experience it on your own. And I know that because I felt the same way. I've had lots of mentors that have said, you know, hey, you're going to go for this, but let me just tell you, when you get there, it's not going to feel the way you think it will. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I know, but but I want to at least find So I know you're going to want to find out for yourself too, just like everybody is, but I'm just going to be the umpteenth person to tell you that what you think it will solve, it likely won't solve that, but it will solve some things and it will give you other opportunities and challenges that you then get to go. So what did you think it was going to solve? I would say for me, I thought it was going to bring a lasting feeling of fulfillment. And and the way that I would liken it is more... It's not so much the long-term satisfaction of, oh my gosh, I arrived, and now I feel that way forever. I would say it's not quite as short-lived as I'm really hungry, and then you have the greatest dinner of your life, and you're like, oh, I'm so satisfied, I'm full, and it lasts until breakfast the next morning. It's a little bit longer than that satisfaction that a great dinner brings, but it's not much. It's almost like and the, the way that people describe this, if you haven't heard it described this way, it's certainly worth a Google. It's called the hedonic treadmill or hedonic adaptation. And what it basically means is like any drug, the more of anything you do, the less meaning it will have, the less impact it will have. So it's sort of like to go from $50,000 a year to sixty dollars or $70,000 a year, that's going to have a huge improvement in your life, in what you can experience, in what you're able to do. But as you move up that income ladder, those same incremental advances matter less and less and less because they're now viewed in a very different lens. So it's like the, the analogy is, is it's almost like you're, you're going up this staircase and with each stair you ascend, you think that you're getting to the top but really all you're getting is a better view of how many stairs you've gone over and how many stairs are still left in front of you. That it, it's, it's this constant readapting your view based on, wow, I didn't know I could do that. Look how far I've come. And oh my gosh, I now know people that are playing at a level I've never even imagined. Before. Like when I was down there, 
all I wanted to be was where I am. And I figured when I was here, that would be it. But now that I'm here, I can see things that I've never seen before. And now all of a sudden, it's like, wow, it'd be, it'd be cool to go for that. So it, it's a very interesting experience. And, and the other thing that I found for me that for everybody listening today to, you know, Coach Jerome and, and being plugged into things like this, which I can't overstate how valuable that is for your life, your mental state, like listening to this rather than listening to the news is the best thing you can do for yourself. But what makes success in however you define it unique is you will never know your price of success until after you've paid it. That it's one of the few things that you have to decide you're going to buy it and you won't know what it costs you until after you've already purchased it. So you're going to decide to buy it. You're going to decide to grind. You're going to decide to go for it. You're going to decide to make those sacrifices, double down, triple down, quadruple down, whatever it takes. But you're never going to know how much it's going to cost you until after it happens. It might be a year. It might be 10. It might be 50. It might be Walt Disney, you know, four personal bankruptcies to get the park open for the first time, but then he created Walt Disney World. So you don't know what your prices can be. All you can choose is whether or not you're going to pay it and whether or not you're going to keep committing to pay it. And then eventually you'll be able to look back and say, okay, this is what it cost me. This is what it cost me in time, effort, ingenuity and intelligence. This is what I paid for how I define success. So this freedom thing, well, you said fulfillment, but what I found with talking with folks is most of them are trying to find financial freedom, right? They're, they're chasing the F of freedom, but it seems like you've already realized like freedom isn't the game. Fulfillment is the game. What happened that switched that for you or were you already there and you didn't think financial freedom was the thing we should be chasing? You know, I think in a way, financial freedom is a really, it's a hard concept because if you really reduce it down, so let's just say hypothetically today, as an example, let's say you're making $50,000 a year and financial freedom is you don't have to work. So let's define financial freedom as you only need to do what you want to do when you want to do it within reason. So however you define that, but basically you have freedom over your time and schedule and you can live the life you want on the terms that you want to live it. Anyone who's pursuing that can have that at any moment they choose. It just requires adjusting your lifestyle. So for example, if someone says, well, I just want time freedom. Well, I mean, homeless people have amazing time freedom and flexibility, very open calendar, might not be that simply defined or gosh, you know, I just want to be able to own a home. Okay, well, I mean, you could head over to Thailand right now and buy a home for what you're going to pay one year in rent in an apartment here, and you can own a home. Well, but okay, well, I, you know, I don't want to be homeless, and I don't want to move to Thailand. So it's sort of one of those things. It's like as you unpack the, oh, no, this is what I want. And it's like, well, but you could have that right now. So why don't you? Why don't you choose to have it in that form? And the answer is because... We want financial freedom, but we want financial freedom on the terms that we want it. So it's not just as simple as I want financial freedom. It's I want my life the way that I want it, how I want it, and I want to have the means to do that. That's very different in my opinion, because if you look at it through the lens of I just want the freedom, well, you already have the freedom. You can have it at any moment that you want. You're not choosing to exercise it because you're desiring to create it in a different way on different terms which I think is a valuable, valiant journey. You should be commended for taking it. It's certainly one that I've undertaken myself. But also by looking at ways that you're defining what financial freedom is, 
it should come with a commensurate increase in your effort, in your intellect, in all of the things that you will need to apply to reach that goal in the way that you want to reach it. And that's where I think a lot of people, to me, often stumble. That it's, I want this thing, but I want the thing the way I want it. But if I really were to look at the effort, does that match the desired outcome? And oftentimes the answer is no. Like, I mean, I, you know, my brother, if he ever listens to this podcast, which he won't, hi, Roddy. Um, we've had a lot of these discussions because, you know, my brother's in the Navy and my brother has always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so we've worked together on two or three different projects. And, you know, I'll call him up on a, a Tuesday and it's like, hey, buddy, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, you know, I'm just heading down to do some yoga by the water in San Diego. I'm like, but you said you wanted to launch the company. Like, oh yeah, but you know, I really want to be learning how to be present and, you know, just kind of really put my, my mental health first or whatever. And I'm just like, okay, like y- you can do that, but just don't come complaining to me when, you know, your e-com business doesn't match all of the Instagram influencers you're following because you're still going to the beach to do yoga. Like, sorry, you're not going to have any sympathy for me. Like, Tell me that you're working every free hour you have, you know, to quote Gary Vaynerchuk, tell me that you've got your nine to five and you're still working on your five to nine and you're still putting in 10 hours on a Saturday and Sunday and then tell man, you know, I just don't know how I'm going to get there because I'm giving it everything I've got. But everyone who tells me they're giving it everything they've got, I rarely find that they're actually giving it everything. I don't think most people are willing to work that hard. I think they're not. And, and our generation today, our society today, to me, like if, if I were to look at the thing that most concerns me as the father of a two and a half year old and, and as someone who has employed a lot of people, that desire is often not there. The work ethic is not there. Like we've, we've grown up in this social media echo chamber of everything perfect, everything shiny and everything delivered with enough time for a four hour morning routine and whatever else. And that's not what built that. Like everyone is looking at nothing but highlight reels waiting for them to get delivered. And it just doesn't happen. Yeah, I, I, I joke that people emulate the end result when they should be focusing on the back end, the thing that nobody wants to show, the mistakes, the failures, the, the struggles to get there. And so, I mean, you're giving me all types of zingers. You said you don't know the price of your success until you pay it. All you can do is commit and then figure out what the tab is backside. I probably added that last part in, but I think that was the just of what you were offering. to nope. us. You're right though. It's a good way to go. And I mean, even if you take it one step deeper and by the way, my like, you know, the price of success, you won't know until after you paid it. It's actually not that deep and it's not even my idea. Like if you go back to the Bhagavad Gita, which is an ancient yogic text, they talk about the fact that we are entitled to our labors, but not necessarily the fruits of them. That, you know, the only choice we get to make is where we apply our efforts and we hope that we're being intelligent and we hope that we're being sincere and we hope that we're going to have the fates smile upon us because we're putting in the work in the right areas and there will be rewards. But the only choice that we can guarantee choice over is where are we applying that effort? And then the rest of it is, is hope and odds and everything else. But the only choice you get to make is where am I going to apply myself after that? There's a whole lot of serendipity and chance that comes in. Serendipity and chance. So did you ever count what your success costs? Well, I can measure it in years. I can measure it in risk. I can measure it in time and effort. So the way that I would describe my journey is on the risk column. So I you know, was in the mortgage business during the 2007, 2008 meltdown. 
went through personal bankruptcy, watched everything go back to the bank, spent probably three to six months blaming the entire world. I'm smart. Place at the wrong time. And then right around month six, I was like, no, actually, I did all of the wrong things at all of the wrong times. And this is 100% my fault. And it took me six months to actually realize that, take accountability for the circumstances I created, and then ask myself that now that I'm not not broke, but broker than broke, like negative broke, like broke would have been a dream and an accomplishment. What do I do now and where am I going to go from there? So on the risk side, there's definitely been the bumps and bruises along the way. And there's always been, quite frankly, a lot of opportunities for me to look like an absolute idiot. I mean, whether it was, you know, my first job at 16 telemarketing for a timeshare company while all of my friends were working super cool jobs at, you know, skate shops and surf shops and having a ball, I was, you know, grinding it out, selling timeshares with an actual phone with a dial pad and like note card lead. So there are moments where it's like, I looked like an absolute idiot compared to all my friends that were having a great time. You know, well, all my friends were in college having a great time. I was in every MLM imaginable, just tried to build a business while I was in college, grew up in a network marketing family. So it was like, okay, I'm going to try that. And I looked ridiculous because while everybody else was playing video games and eating fruit snacks, I'm like, on my next telephone with my unlimited minutes package, like smiling and dialing for dollars, trying to get people into whatever deal I was in at the time. So there's definitely a cost of looking like an idiot when when everyone else is zigging and you're zagging. You know, there's there's a big part of it as well. And I can certainly measure it in years that, you know, I can go back to remembering when I moved to California for the first time, being exposed to a level of wealth and achievement that I'd never experienced before and saying, okay, how am I going to find my way in this universe? You know, how is this Midwest kid that came from an area where an S-class Mercedes may as well have been a spaceship and moving to an area where an S-class is just a Newport Beach Honda Accord? What does that mean? How do I handle that? How do I adjust? So there's a lot of, I would say, leaning into that uncertainty and trusting that process that, again, if you've committed to paying the price, all of this just fits because you already know that's what's required of you. But if you're not sure about paying the price, each one of these areas is now a reevaluation inflection point. It's an opportunity for you to say, gosh, do, do I really want to pay the price? Or I tried that last thing and it didn't work. I don't know that I want to try something else. I don't know that I want to risk again and again and again and again. I don't know that I want to look foolish. I don't know that I'm willing to step on stage and talk. I don't know that I'm willing to move to Arizona to be mentored by Joe Pollitt and then move to Atlanta to be mentored by Matt Basin only to move back to Arizona, only to move to Connecticut, only to move back to Southern California. I don't know if I'm ready you know, to get married to the love of my life. And then you explain to her and her family why I have a different job every year and sometimes more than one different job in a given year while we're getting married. And I'm like, I know it's going to work. And you know, my wife was like, I know it's going to work. And my wife's family was like, we know it's going to work. But it didn't mean that there weren't plenty of people that were like, he has another job again? Like, what is he doing? And this would be one where I'd, I'd probably give credit to Naval Ravikant for sure. His quote was, I was always willing to share, but until external validation, nobody cared to listen. And that's been the most ironic part about this journey is I'm exactly the same person thinking exactly the same way, doing exactly the same things. But now because I have this, this big achievement, all of a sudden everyone's like, ooh, you know, J-Cron's got some insights. J-Cron might be smart. J-Cron might be, maybe he should be on a podcast. And it's so interesting how that that one halo effect thing all of a sudden changes everything. I'll never forget closing my first multifamily deal and all the people who didn't want to talk to me wanted to talk to me now. 
and I was no smarter. I was probably a little bit dumber than I was. I think about the engineering license and it's like all these things where you have an outcome and then it's like, oh, now they know what they're talking about. Now it's okay. Now they're verified or validated. You got your blue check. Congratulations. So that's a lot of different things. It's, I think it's really cool that you had support at home when you're saying you're going to make it work and you guys are moving around the country and doing the things because a lot of people don't have that level of support and they're trying to figure it out on their own. You know, one of my favorite movies is a pursuit of happiness. And when the main character's wife tells him he should go be an astronaut, when he says he wants to be a stockbroker, like that cuts pretty deep because if nobody's on the journey with you, it gets really lonely really quick. And you might believe that you're crazy if the people closest to you don't agree with the path that you're taking. So did you find that the people that were with you in 2007, 2008, when you were blaming the world for your world being turned upside down, did they go with you on the journey to what we may call the high of the highs? I would say by and large, yeah. I didn't really lose any friends or, you know, gain any different friends. People that were in my life then are still in my life today. And I think that going to that idea of support at home, I think it is very, very important to have that support at home. But what I also think is very important is that if you're going to ask for that support at home, you are modeling being a person that deserves that support. Then I think what I often find with people that are pursuing, let's just call the umbrella of non-traditional paths in employment, entrepreneurship, whatever it happens to be, anything that is just enough of a standard deviation outside of societies like you show up, you get paid, blah, 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 the standard career path, whatever it is, it's just a little outside of that. You have a different standard being placed on you. You're saying to the world, I'm going to be different. I'm going to pursue this differently. And if you have parents that are supporting you, a spouse that's supporting you, if you have people in your life that are depending on you, you're asking them to basically invest in you. And that investment may be time, it may be money, it may be emotional support, it may be any of those things. But you are absolutely asking that person to invest in you for the returns that will come out of you succeed. And the real hard truth is, are you worth that investment? The question isn't, did you decide to take a different path? The question is, how hard are you running at that path every single day? Like, are you actually getting up early? Are you actually putting in the work? Are you actually making sacrifices and putting in the reps so that at least anybody looking at you or supporting you can say, no guarantees, nobody knows if the path is going to pay off. But man, I can tell you what, I will never, ever say he is not working every available hour he possibly can to make it happen. And what I find oftentimes is the people are like, I just don't have support at home. I'm like, pick up your phone. Show me how much time you've been spending on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Show me how much time you're spending on Netflix. Show me how much time you are organizing your desk or shopping for your car, for your vision board or whatever it is. Show me all of the things that you're doing that are not actual work. And I'll show you the people that aren't supporting you. And they're not supporting you, not because they don't believe in you or believe you're capable. They just see that you're not putting in the work. And they know that if you're not putting in the work, it's not going to work, plain and simple. So I think for me, that not support at home, the first thing you want to do is take a hard look in the mirror and ask, am I 
someone that I would invest in. Like if, if I were not me, if I was watching me on this path, would I look at that person and my, that behavior and that work ethic and that discipline? And I would say, I would invest in that person. And the answer is almost a resounding, yeah, I got some work to do. So that part is super interesting to me because I don't think most people actually know how hard it is. Like, I don't think they know the work, right? Because you talked about the highlight reels already. And I've heard you talk about, you know, our cutting room floor. And so, you know, I'll never forget doing a deal. And I was like, why am I working so hard? And everybody else just seems to be on autopilot and making money and things are working. And I found out later on that they were all doing the same thing, but it was what it, it was like a duck sitting on a river where it, they made it look good on top of the river, but underneath they're working crazy. I appreciate you saying that work is required. And I know anyone you are who tells you success. it's not is yeah. anyone who tells you it's not is selling you something. And the vast majority of successes that everybody sees, it's a 10 year overnight success. It really, nobody sees years one through nine. Like uh, today, only I only get asked about, wow, what was Kajabi like? And then maybe somebody asks me what led me to Kajabi, but nobody's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know you were bankrupt in the mortgage fallout. Oh, I didn't know that you spent two years trying to learn this world of online marketing and curriculum and educational products. I, I didn't know any of that. And it's like, yeah, I know. Cause that was, those were the roots. That was all of the time below ground before anyone saw anything. And, you know, those were the years that the foundation was being built. Bamboo tree, bamboo tree. So you, you've mentioned a few names and, you know, I feel like nobody actually is self-made, right? I think there are people, even if they tell, teach us what not to do, they help us on our journey. And so do you have some inflection points where somebody showed up and like, it, you could tell that there was a, a change in trajectory as a result of spending time with them? Oh, massively. Mentors have been a huge. So if you go back to the earliest mentors I had, it was books. My parents were always really, really big on supporting and, and investing in my entrepreneurial career. So at first, you know, I got Think and Grow Rich and I got all, you know, John Maxwell's 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And I got these books when I was, you know, I don't know, 12, 13 years old. And my parents, whenever the school had a walkathon or Easter candy drive or whatever, I was going door to door and I putting up the numbers. I was on every leaderboard imaginable because my parents were like, go, go do this, you know, figure out how to knock on a stranger's door, tell a story about you buying computers for your school and get money for the walkathon, go do your thing. So I look back at, at the home that I grew up in, there was a tremendous focus on you can do anything figure it out, make it happen, let's go. And then that led to going into high school, college, me knowing that I could attempt anything. And so then my next major mentor was a gentleman named Steve James. Steve had a beautiful 97 Diablo Roadster, black on black, that was my dream car at the time. I dropped a note in the roof of the car in a parking lot and uh, get a call back like two minutes later from a guy with a British accent. He's like, hi, is Jen there? And I'm like, no, there's no Jen here. It's just John. And he's like, oh, okay, hangs up. And I'm like, oh shit, that was the guy that I was supposed to, you know, I put a note in his car. So I call him back and he's like, hello. And I'm like, hi, Steve, you know, I'm so sorry. My name's John, probably when I signed my name, but I'm the gentleman that dropped a note in your car. He's like, oh yeah, you know, sorry, don't have any time. I thought you were a girl that liked my car. And, you know, we hung up and 
Then I called him back and called him once a week for about two months. So like eight or nine times. And every time he was busy, this, that, and the other, finally around like the ninth phone call, he's like, look, if I have lunch with you, will you just stop calling me? And I'm like, yeah, totally. So we end up having lunch, become fast friends. And he's now been a mentor, a friend for 22 years. And uh, the first sales job I had, he's like, look, if you want any type of success, you got to learn how to sell. So I spoke with the general manager over at Fletcher Jones. He's got a job that, you know, go in, interview, see if he can land it. And that's where you got to start. And so that started my sales career, which led to my mortgage career, which, you know, kind of was the foundation for everything. So that was one of my earliest mentors. And then post-mortgage business falling out, Joe Polish was my next mentor. I bought all of Dan Kennedy's products when the world came undone. The first one I opened up, Joe Polish is on the CD. The comment that was on there was that Joe said, someday they will erect a statue to my contributions to direct response marketing. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, I got to have that. So we'll call up Joe's office and hey, I want to hire him for consulting. They're like, okay, he's $50,000 or $25,000 a day. And I was like, well, I'm bankrupt. So I'll give him $500 for five minutes. And if he doesn't want to talk to me after that, we're good. And then, the beginning of my friendship with Joe Polish. I, I moved out to Arizona. He mentored me in marketing for, gosh, better part of three, four months. And absent him, I wouldn't have ever gotten into this industry. And, uh, you know, I thank Joe constantly for the role he played in my career. And, you know, I've had tons of mentors uh, since Joe, you know, Matt Basak, Chet Holmes, Tony Robbins, Mike Canings, Ryan Dice, Perry Belcher, Roland Frazier, you know, all Kenny Reader, my, my partner Kajabi, one of my best friends and biggest mentors in my life. So, yeah, I mean, they're... I would say if, if there's something to take away from my story, other than the hilarity of taking risks and meeting good people along the way, I would always encourage everybody to just be willing to put yourself out there and be willing to put yourself out there in a way that is valuable to others. You can't overstate that, you know, fate just steps in and, and does a lot of really cool stuff by just being willing to be out there. And, and that's definitely been my journey. It's definitely how it's all come together for sure. A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential, but lack the strategy, support and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, a.k.a. the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. The one thing that I've noticed about all the people who get big success is they risk what they most people would say they don't have in order to get access to a new network. What gave you the confidence to send $500 when you were going through what you were going through? Because I suspect you might not have known where the next $500 was going to come from. So Einstein always said that you cannot solve a problem at the same level of consciousness that created it. And so if I had a career that went bust and I spent six months being angry at the world, trying to figure out why this happened, and I hadn't figured out what to do next, the likelihood of me figuring it out through navel gazing, hanging out, probably not going to happen. And so I knew that the fastest path the time machine was figure out how to get around somebody that knew something I didn't. So 
so that I could dump that into my mental computer and see what my mental computer kicked out or came up with. That that I, I just knew that I needed a different set of mentors, a different experience set, a different opportunity. And, you know, that was how it all came together. Did you continue down the path of paid mentors or was like that one time payment to the, to a Joe, the end of it, and then you were able to just get introductions and navigate it with just, I guess, organic mentorship? Well, and, you know, I wouldn't even call Joe really a paid mentor because I mean, $500 for Joe, I mean, it, it wouldn't even qualify me to get 15 minutes of his time based on his rate at the time. I think if you were to ask Joe why that mattered, it was because I at least valued his time enough to indicate that I didn't want it free. I didn't call him up and ask to pick his brain. I didn't call him up and just kind of bring a sense of entitlement that because he's successful, he owes teaching, training me or telling me his secrets because he's already arrived. It was very much a realization on my part that it was like, look, I'm, I'm paying for the time. And I recognize it's not the rate you normally charge, but for me, that's the most that I can afford. And so I think that that was an area where Joe was like, okay, you're not asking for a favor. And I think that that was something that helped really put our relationship on a different path because I'm sure he gets all of the favor requests all of the time. So I would say that that was a big learning. And my mentors along the way, all the mentors I just mentioned, those are people that I worked with, not people that I was paying for their time. But even today, do I have mentors that I pay? Of course. Like today, I mean, the amount of wisdom that is available for very little dollar is unbelievable. I mean, the, the cheapest and most prevalent books, I mean, Kindle books for 99 cents that can change your life, that are like the, the entire summation of somebody's entrepreneurial journey is available for one fourth the cost of a cup of coffee. Like that is just shockingly cool. The other path of paid mentorship is whether it's intro or whether volley or whether it's all of these apps where you can access unbelievable personalities and wisdom for less than a thousand dollars for i mean you know you can get on the phone for an hour with the guy who's founded and sold kinkos to FedEx, and you can less than a thousand dollars for like a, a 30 minute phone call and now granted i know there are a lot of you that are listening they're like man a thousand dollars is a fortune that's insane maybe it is right now and that's why you should spend the 99 cents on the Kindle book that's going to help you develop the mentality that you then have enough to get the $1,000 phone call that's going to then give you more knowledge and more tweaks to your experience and your approach. No matter where you are, there's always going to be a path that is appropriate for your budget. And guess what, by the way? If 99 cents for a Kindle book is too much, great news. Tons of amazing blog articles and podcasts just like this one that cost you $0. So- there's never an excuse for you to not be getting better, but there is there has never been a time where there is as much valuable information available for absolutely no charge that only requires you to take action on it. It's never existed before. So the excuse, you just eliminated all the excuses. In all sincerity, if you are listening to this right now in good health, living in the United States of America, no, there's no excuse. Like, like, and, and it, this might be controversial, it might be triggering, and it might be something that people will totally fight me on. But my belief is there is no excuse. Absolutely no excuse. Now, some people might have it easier. Some people might have it harder. Some paths might be more challenging. Some paths might be different. That is absolutely true. I'm not saying everything is created equal for everyone at all times. 
I'm simply saying that nobody that wants it bad enough, life will not keep it from you. That's what I'm saying. The will to finish. And so you've got an interesting perspective on personal brand. And I'd like to spend the last few minutes that we have together talking about that because you've been able to have the success that you've had without like a big social media following or a YouTube channel or most of that other stuff. And you value relationships, but I guess it's relationships in real life and not the social media relationships. So like, so, so just to be clear, and, and this is my opinion as unedited as I can give it to you. Social networking is neither social nor networking. It is neither of the two. Social networking is a voyeuristic, narcissistic dream that everybody has of putting out their highlight reels, filtered, tweaked, photoshopped, edited, rented, leased, whatever, and having a whole bunch of strangers that they're never going to meet, love them, validate them, and, and give them whatever type of fulfillment they're looking for. But make no mistake about it, they don't love you in your car. They love the car you're in. They don't love you in your house. They love the house you're in. They don't love you and the body that you have. They love the body that they wish they have. That the idea that all of us have about having shiny things is that people will see those shiny things and respect us, like us, respond to us the way that we want them to. But the reality of it is all everyone sees is I want the thing you have. I'm not viewing you the way you think I am or want me to view you. So no, I, I hate social. It, it's a necessary evil. It's something that I am warming up to in a way. But I also think that if I do decide to do it, I'm going to go after it very, very differently. That I I don't want to create sound bites, shareables. I don't want to be another me to quote tile, you know, 842 people have that on the same day at any given time. The world doesn't need any more of that. And if you think that you're going to become an influencer by doing the same stuff, you're not. It just, and especially now with AI, AI is going to do all of it you know, lame, undifferentiated, uninsightful stuff. Like that had little value before. It now has almost zero value. So I think where social media is going to go, it's going to be an attention aggregation game. It is going to be a real, impactful, authentic sharing of things. But that the majority of what right now is just garbage, intellectual junkie, I think that's going to go away. <laughs> no BS, J-Cron. That's the way I think about you when I hear you talk. And it's you're so authentic, which I feel like is, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I just don't have enough exposure, but I feel like it's rare. Like you, you have an opinion, you're willing to share your opinion. And I think that works. And I think your opinions are well thought out. You're well read. And I mean, you've quoted some things that I think a lot of people can stick a pen in and, and maybe make some adjustments to their approach. When you think about where you've arrived at now, what would you say is your most valuable possession? Wow, that is a great question. How are we defining possession? Do you mean like anything you can purchase? Yes, because I'm going to go to the things that money can't buy, probably the next one or two questions. So anything that you could purchase. I would probably say... My favorite item that I, I would say, let, let's focus on the area that 
I enthusiastically pursue. And for me, that would be watches. Watches is my favorite thing on the planet. And it really comes from not only how I grew up, but also what they represent to me. And and I'll, I'll expound on that a little bit. So I grew up, my dad had a Rolex and it was his ultimate prized possession. Like this was the man, when you have achieved what you need to achieve in the boardroom, business room, this is what you get. And so I grew up in this environment where that was the status symbol of I did it. Now, that is what started my love of watches, but it's not actually what really kept it. Because I mean, to this day, I now own watches that my dad had never even heard of. And, you know, I needed to explain to him why they're cool and different because, you know, my dad's a Rolex guy. For me, what watches are is it's just such a unique conversation starter and a unique feat of engineering. Like the idea that you can have a watch that keeps track of the day, the date, the lunar cycle, the year, the leap years, the time, that it can do all of those things and it can do it with cogs and gears and no batteries, to me is just wild. Like it just is so surreal to imagine the amount of little tiny parts that somebody had to spend a year of their life building to bring this thing into being. To me, that's just absolutely wild. And the other thing that I like about it is it's almost in a way an opportunity to have something that is an aspirational purchase, you know, something that you're excited about, that you've saved for, that you really want, but it also becomes something that is so much more, that it it's something that you're going to pass down to the next generation, that you're going to tell the story about where you were, what you got it, why you have it, why it matters. You know, I don't know that cars have that. I don't know that sweaters or clothing have that. I don't know that houses have that. To me, it's just such a story keeper that that I really like that flavor of it. And I also am am a guy that I'm I'm pretty reserved in the way that I like to show up. Like I'm not gonna, you know, you're, you're never gonna see me draped up, dripped out, you know, loud car, the whole deal. Like it's just that's not really who I am. Like I'm perfectly happy in my my Lululemon t-shirts. And you know, the fact that I can have a Lululemon t-shirt is about as much luxury as I ever really get excited about. But what I like about the watches is it's something that I can wear something that if somebody knows, they're going to be like, wow, that is super cool. But it's not like I'm showing up, popping open a Lambo door and it's like, hey, Jake Rod's here. Like, I don't know that I'll ever have a Lambo. I don't know that I want to ever have one, but I know that if I'm driving, strangers are going to be like, oh, it was a Lambo. I like that watches are not like that. It's much more of a subtle Wow, that's super cool. And if you're if you're into it, boy, we're gonna geek out for hours talking about that kind of stuff. So for me, that that would probably be the category that I I gravitate towards the most. I really do enjoy. I love it. 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 The the thought of if you know, you know is always fun. I'm a car guy, and so I always debadge my cars. So people, you either know or you don't know, and that part is exciting because when they know. You can have a conversation. There's a bonding moment. When I agree with you entirely, unbadged cars are so much of a cleaner look. It, it really, it just, yeah, total win. What do you value most in your I would probably say I like friends that are, I don't know how I would describe the quality, but I would describe them as it's never about how long it's been since we talked last. It's about how excited we are that we're talking now. 
I don't have a lot of friends in my life that are like, oh, dude, I haven't seen you in forever. And it's like, yeah, I, of course you haven't because I'm fucking busy. Like I got shit to do. I'm you know, trying to take on the world and help people and do cool stuff and build companies and you know, be a dad or husband or whatever else. Like the last thing I need is someone to be like, oh, really, I want to be here forever. You know, you don't make fun for us anymore. Like the moment somebody does that, I'm, I'm out. Like I'm just like, dude, like no. But the friends that I have that are all like, we're busy too. And it's super cool that we get to see each other and spend time. And oh my gosh, how lucky are we that, you know, we got to grab this dinner, grab this drink, grab this trip, whatever. Those are the type of people that I love because I know they're out doing things too. And I know that whenever we sync up, we're going to talk about the fun stuff that we're doing. It's one of the reasons why I love my my YPO brothers, my my young president's organization friends, because it it has kind of some rhythms built into it where we're going to see each other once a month. And we might not talk at all in between those meetings, but man, when we get together, we're chopping it up and we're having an amazing time. But there's not this expectation that if we don't hang out once a week, we're somehow not close or not besties or you know whatever the kids call it today. I don't know. But for me and friends, it would be that understanding that we're all going at it as best we can. And we might not have as much time, but we are going to maximize the time that we do have. Sounds like grace. Sounds like grace. Grace would be a good one. Um, last two questions, man. Thank you so much for being here with us. What's yeah, your pleasure. idea of perfect happy? I don't know. I, I would say that I have thought a lot about happiness over the course of the last year and a half of being unemployed. And I would say that I don't know that I would describe it as happiness as much as I would be fulfillment and accomplishment. Those are the feelings that make, those are the feelings that make me feel happy. So like when I'm connecting with my wife and daughter, I'm happy. When I am working on a project that I'm excited about, I'm happy. When I'm actually exercising, which I've been woefully inadequate about, I'm happy. Like in those moments that I'm going after something, I'm happy. But I don't know that happiness absent going after something exists. Like, I don't know if it's just that general state. So for me, the general state, I'm always optimistic. I'm always pumped. I'm always, you know, any day above ground is a good day. Healthy man has many goals. A thick man has only one. Like if, if you're listening to this and you're healthy and you're awake, hot damn, you got everything going for you. So that's normally my, my viewpoint on life in general. Everything else is just a bonus. So that's perfect happiness for me would be continuing to find things that I'm excited about pursuing. That would be it. Wow. Wow. So making progress towards a worthy pursuit. That's- yeah. Tony Robbins actually, I think is the one who described happy. He said, happiness equals progress that you show me someone who feels like they're progressing. I'll show you someone who's happy. Thank you. So you early on in the show, you talked about giving people something you didn't say it this way but giving people something to respect basically you're doing the work so they can believe in you they can believe that you're going to get to the outcome or the thing you're working on is that still the same today i guess the question i'm truly trying to ask you is like what keeps you accountable or who keeps you accountable (laughs) today it's very much the same way i mean as what i can tell you i've learned in the last year and a half and i talked about it a little bit on that stage presentation about thinking and drinking is I have learned that I have only two speeds as a human being. I have my production speed and I have my consumption speed. And if I am not producing, I am only consuming. And if I'm only consuming, I'm sad. If I'm producing, I'm happy. 
And if I'm producing, I'm not thinking about consuming, which is awesome because it means I'm buying less stupid things than I probably don't need. And I'm working on things that matter. So I would say since I decided to publish my book, since I decided to try and codify some of my business knowledge and systems and put it out there for the world to hopefully benefit from, I've been much happier. I'm looking at launching my own podcast. Really excited about that because it's a format that I love. I think it's so cool that we can provide this for for anyone who wants to listen to it, I think is super cool. So I would say what I've learned is that production drives out consumption in my life. And that's something that's been a very important lesson for me. And as far as accountability, I mean, my wife, 100%, like she, you know, what before I started writing my book, I think she actually made the joke. She's like, and really like in and out for lunch. And while you're there, why don't you pick up a job application? And I was like, oh, is it that bad? She goes, yeah, it's that bad. She's like, I can literally see you differently. Like on days that you've had a business stimulating conversation, she's like, you're you're the man I married. You're a different guy. On days that you've had no business stimulation, you're like sad panda, like walking around lost, you know, trying to invent things to do. And so that's what I mean, where it's like, if you're going to ask people to support you, be the type of person that you would want to support. And and I would say I've been very, very fortunate that my wife is extremely supportive and understanding because this you know season has been a weird one to apple acclimate to. But I think coming out of it, there's now more clarity than ever on what I'm excited about and how I want to pursue it. So she would definitely be the one that, you know, keeps me grounded, keep, you know, all of those things. There's there is a a magic to the fact that even though I can go hop on a stage and tell a story and have people be like, oh my God, I can't believe you did that. You know, my wife's gonna be the type that's like, yeah, you know. Crushed it on stage, honey. Nice job, but you know, still got to take the garbage out. So, you know, don't don't forget. And that is so immensely valuable because, I mean, man, the moment that you start believing your own hype, ooh, downfall was quick to come. So, and so she's keeping you grounded, is what it sounds like. Absolutely, in the most motivating way possible. She's definitely the completely secure foundation that I get to go after the world and and feel completely confident in. But she's also more than comfortable enough to be like. Yeah, honey, I, I know that you're excited about this book. So why don't you work on the book rather than crushing three seasons of, you know, 1897 on Netflix or whatever? Like, really? I mean, come on. So, you know, you're, you're telling me you're busy. You're telling me you can't hang out with, you know, your daughter and I today because you're working on your book. And I come home and there's a dent in the couch that clearly indicates you haven't moved. Like, all right, let's go here. <laughs> That's amazing, man. Jay Crown, thank you so much for being so generous. My pleasure. My pleasure, Coach Jerome. Hopefully everyone listens, stays close to your podcast, stays close to the wisdom you're putting out there in the world and helping everybody level up. So it's a, a good thing. Well, let me know when the book drops so we can put it in front of the listeners and hopefully get a few copies sold. I absolutely will, my friend. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you to everybody listening and chat soon. To the listeners, your dreams should be real. Talk to you on the next episode. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.